This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Josue Michels. Good to be here. And Joshua Taylor. Good afternoon. The biggest story of the week, right as Gerald Flurry's book, America Under Attack, is coming to our mailroom, hopefully Monday next week. More exposure of the depth of corruption within America's government. The FBI raided the private residence of former President Donald Trump. Stephen Flurry's been talking about it all week on Trumpet Daily. It's hard to believe it only happened this past Monday. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this really is a huge story. I mean, you, you routinely hear about federal security forces raiding the residences of former presidents and places like Brazil or Honduras. But this has never happened in the United States before. Uh, it was about 6.36 uh, in the evening p.m. Uh, on Monday. You had um, well over a dozen FBI uh, agents show up at Mar-a-Lago, and they've uh, they've since admitted that they timed the raid to happen while President Trump was uh, at a rally, so he was not home at the time. Uh, broke into the house. I mean, went through like uh, his wife Melania's closet. Broke open one of his safes. Um, uh, confiscated, uh, I think, several boxes worth of stuff. And so that's a that's pretty shocking. I mean, if you you just read the headline and didn't think about anything more than that, I would assume like, it's like, well, what what level of corruption must uh, must President Trump have been uh, involved in to warrant something that really only happens in banana republics? Uh, but as the week has gone on, we've gotten more details, and it uh, uh, well, we've seen enough FBI corruption over the past. Uh, few years, that's probably what you should have guessed, uh, that this was really uh, a lot of ado about nothing. They got a judge, a pretty <laughs> a pretty anti-Trump judge who spent um, several years uh, working with um, uh, the convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein before he was a judge to sign a warrant. They haven't released the warrant yet, but they will soon. Uh, but the, the the word on the street is the the warrant was for uh, a violation of like the Presidential Records Act. Um, all presidents, when they leave the White House, take some of their stuff with them. Uh, they have the right to do it, and and pretty much, it's really hard to say that that's wrong because since a president has the power to declassify stuff, no one has any proof that President Trump didn't just wave his hand over those boxes uh, at 11.59 on January 20th and declassify whatever he wanted to keep with him. Uh, but he had been working with the, um, with the National Archives and sent about 15 boxes of stuff back to them earlier this year. So, I mean, he'd been very cooperative if they wanted stuff back. So there really was no reason for a warrant like that. Um, unless the warrant was just, like I said, the excuse to get your foot in the door to look for something else. I mean, uh, I guess probably in the days to come, we'll see what all they took. So far, it looks like they confiscated 
uh, a cocktail napkin, a birthday planning list, uh, a list of phone numbers, uh, a hand like a written note from Kim Jong Un, and uh, a few other memorabilia. So nothing really serious. It looks like, but they were looking for something, and I think probably most <laughs> most the better legal analysts I've read said that they thought they're probably looking for something to tie him to the January 6th protests since the January 6th commission is um, ongoing or just wrapping up and um, they haven't really found any evidence at all that President Trump was involved in stirring up protests or riots at that event. Right. And, and so, then they're, they're also talking about the possibility that that they um, could be confiscating information that uh, he he has relative to the uh, the Trump Russia uh, collusion investigation that that they might actually be trying to confiscate and control that information that that he has. Yeah, I mean that's another big thing that you're something uh, really something anything they can get to try to bar him from office. Like I said, I think Mark Elias and and this is kind of a. Uh, uh, so ironic, it's almost funny. And uh, that Mark Elias was Hillary Clinton's lawyer for years. He's the he's the man who actually paid Christopher Steele for his fake dossier uh, on the Russia collusion hoax. Uh, I think he was uh, involved with the Clinton campaign during her whole email scandal, and he was actually said a couple times this week that he thinks that uh, he found some obscure statute that says that like someone who's been convicted of mishandling classified information can be barred from office. So he actually had said a couple times this week that he thinks, like, well, if we can convict Trump of like violating the Presidential Records Act, so we can bar him from holding office. And so he's he's been open that that he thinks that's one of their goals. Uh, pretty much any other constitutional lawyer I read have said, that, yeah, that's not going to hold water. Like I said, there's no proof that Trump didn't declassify that stuff with a wave of his hand as he walked out the door. Uh, and two, it's like the Constitution's pretty clear that like you have to like impeach and convict right. a man <clears throat> to keep him from office. A statute's not going to do it. You have to have something more serious than that. Now, if you could make a case, as they've been trying to make for years, that he either deliberately stirred up an insurrection against a duly elected president on January 6th, or if that he was illegally colluding with Russia to steal an election, that would be uh, a more serious crime you could use to impeach, convict, and bar a man from office. Now, they've been trying to make both those cases for a long time now, uh, have found no evidence of it. So getting a getting a warrant on violations of the Presidential Record Act just to get some agents in the door uh, might be a, a way that their fingers crossed find something. But uh, it's definitely, um, I guess well, they, they know they're not going hunt. to find anything. I mean, they, they, it's it's uh, they've gone over all of this so much. And the idea that they would there would be some some document somewhere deep inside his home uh, that they haven't seen yet. That's that's not going to happen. But the the chance that they might plant something, that's certainly a possibility. The chance that they might uh, try to pin something on him that they you know, the fact that they were so opaque about it, that they didn't allow his lawyers or anyone else to to uh, oversee what they were doing. It was all completely behind closed doors. Um, and they've proven in so many instances that they are not trustworthy. Uh, it just shows 
how desperate they are in so many ways. I mean, they it, it does feel like they've really kind of rolled the dice and and tried this kind of uh, you know extreme measure to find some some way to uh, to pin some kind of something on him. I think uh, Mr. Flurry on his program he. He had this quote from Ari Fleischer, who said this whole thing ends of one and two, one of two ways. Either Trump is in jail because of something that truly is incriminating, uh, or else the entire FBI, Merrick Garland, has to resign in disgrace. Uh, the whole in, uh, agency is discredited. Uh, there's nothing in between these two these two ways. When this is proven to be unwarranted and, and illegal, there has to be a reckoning, and it, it really has the potential to to unravel so much of the uh, of the corruption that we've seen in these in this agency. Yeah, it definitely has a huge chance to backfire uh, on the on the FBI because I, I've seen a number of comments from. Uh, some conservatives who were saying that, like said, well, originally I was hoping that uh, maybe a candidate who's a little more moderate or a little mm -hmm. more polite or a little more well-spoken might run for the Republican nomination in 2024. But then after I saw like this uh, FBI witch hunt on Trump's house, is like it's like I really hope like Trump runs again and just takes the entire institution down. Mm -hmm. And it's true, like, but you can say it's. It is scary to think about like the extent that the um, some of these people will go to as well. Because like I said, if we go back to like Nazi Germany, I mean, to use an extreme example, I mean, the Gestapo did that routinely where they'd like get a letter someone wrote and uh, type up two paragraphs against the Fuhrer and insert it on like page three, show them the letter, be like, you write this. And they'd look at the front page and turn it over, look at the second page, like, yeah, yeah, I wrote this. And then they'd turn to the third page and then find the paragraph they didn't write. And like, oh, uh, you can, well, we'll put you in jail on that. Right. Or show Rand, me the Rand, man, I'll show you the crime. <laughs> Rand Paul was saying that this week is like, he said, oh yeah, it's like, so they confiscated several boxes of Mar-a-Lago, but it's like they're, um, he's like, they're, but it's in FBI custody now. And they haven't shown it to anybody. So it's like, who's to say they just don't put some stuff mm -hmm. in those boxes that wasn't in there before, before they show it to the lawyers. And then it's hard to say, it's like, okay, well you took that from his home, but that doesn't mean whatever you find in it was in it originally. Uh, yeah. Well, I have just been thinking about the, the scripture that Gerald Flurry has pointed to in second Kings 14 about Donald Trump having to war to recover his presidency. And you see, there really is uh, a war going on. This gives you a sense of how much the left is willing to battle uh, to, uh, to try to take him out. And there's no way that uh, you could fight against that without a real war for for this to unfold the way that we know prophecy says it will uh, there is going to have to be a war uh, so we do want to uh, recommend that you uh, we have a, an article up on the website by Stephen Flurry FBI raids President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home you can read that but also we really want to uh, direct you to that book by Gerald Flurry, America Under Attack. It's up and available on the website right now. And uh, you should be able to get a hard copy of that very soon as well. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. Last week, we saw renewed fighting in Israel. Well, this week it ended in a ceasefire and what looks to be a victory for the Jewish state. For this story, we'll go to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting because last week we mentioned that the tensions were rising. 
And what's interesting is while we were recording, Israel launched uh, an operation against Gaza and against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And the fighting went lasted for about three days. And then uh, they negotiated a ceasefire through Egypt between Israel and this group on August 7th. And during this fighting, you could say this was probably the most complete and total victory Israel has had against the against any terrorist group it's gone to war with. The IDF basically on day one decapitated their leadership in Gaza. They destroyed most of their uh, weaponry and infrastructure, and they kept uh, Palestinian civilian casualties to an absolute minimum. They were able to keep Hamas out of the fighting. And on top of all of that, they were able to achieve this victory without a single Israeli casualty, whether military or civilian. And even in a rarity, the international community did not condemn Israel for defending itself, which it seems like every time Israel even so much as sneezes in Gaza's direction, they're getting condemned for it. So that was pretty amazing. Uh, and according to the IDF, they put out some statistics. Uh, during the fighting, the, P, uh, the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad launched over about 1,100 rockets and mortars at Israel. Of those, 200 of those fell short uh, into Gaza and misfired. Uh, killing the majority of the civilian casualties that they had, which was 15. And Israel's Iron Dome had about an interception rate of about 98% of the rockets that actually crossed into Israel and that were threatening populated uh, populated areas. So it looks like a pretty overwhelming victory for Israel, which is, again, pretty, pretty rare for Israel in that regards, just how complete and total it was. But then the question then becomes, well, what has actually changed on the ground in terms of this victory? what like who who want who are the victors besides israel like wh and what has actually changed for israel in terms of their security situation and if you look at the look at the situation on the ground not much uh, jonathan tobin in his piece uh covering this uh he writes for the jewish uh news syndicate put out a pretty good uh, summation of it all he said as with several other bouts of such fighting in and around gaza over the last 14 years it has ended with Israel offering the Palestinian terror groups quiet for quiet. And this is the key. It is, as almost all Israelis know, a problem without a solution. So while this victory was, again, in if you're just looking at the numbers, pretty, pretty amazing, pretty complete, it hasn't changed anything for Israel security-wise. Yeah, we uh, we have an article up on the website by uh, Mihailo Zekic, who's there in Jerusalem, uh, where he says, uh, well, the title of it is Chaos in Gaza by Design. And he says that uh, obviously Iran is uh, very much supportive of Hamas, but they are actually like directly commanding the uh, Islamic Jihad group that launched these uh, these attacks. So you you definitely have to look at Iran's uh, presence behind what happened here. And the point that he makes is that this might have actually been intended to rehabilitate Hamas's image, to have greenlighted uh, the Islamic Jihad group to do this. Maybe you can just explain that point. Yeah, Simon makes some really great points in his article about that. Because, again, the group that started this, so to speak, it was the, not Hamas. Hamas, uh, throughout this, was actually portrayed in the news as, as wanting to try and curb this, prevent the fighting. They very clearly, from the news articles that were written about them, didn't want this to happen. Which, if you look at it, makes a little sense because they just fought, got, uh, Hamas fought 
Israel last year, and they're still kind of rebuilding their infrastructure, still trying to rebuild their their weapons and their and their tunnel networks and all that stuff. And also, they're receiving a lot of uh, humanitarian aid from Israel, the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar. But as Simon points out, Yir Lapid, he he's probably one of the biggest winners in this politically because uh, normally Israel waits for. Uh, the Palestinians to start firing rockets before they respond because it helps them, you know, it's a, it helps them uh, in their PR wise, so to speak, saying, look, we're defending ourselves. And typically when Israel strikes first, that's when they get condemned. But this time they, uh, Yir Lapid ordered the, the military in preemptively and took out, as we said, as I said, decapitated the leadership and all of that. So by doing that, he's signaling to the Israeli people, you know, I'm, Sorry, I'm your protector, and it gains him some brownie points among the Israeli people, politically, so to speak. But as we were saying with Hamas, what's interesting is that Yir Lapid has said in the past that he doesn't want to have to rule the Palestinians, whether in the West Bank or in Gaza. He has no interest in governing those people. He would like to, he would like, he's a supporter of the two state solution. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do a two state solution, who are you now dealing with? Well, now you're dealing with Hamas, who controls the Gaza Strip. So as uh, Simon points out in his article, uh, not only is Yer Lapid, whose image is being uh, re rehabilitated, what may be most incredible is how the war is, at least in small ways, rehabilitating the image of Hamas. Because Hamas was portrayed as, you know, moderate this time, and they're not moderate. They are also su supported by Iran. They are portrayed as, you know, the guys with the common sense. They're the ones that are like, we don't like, look at us, we're trying to govern peacefully. And that's not the way Hamas is. Again, Hamas started a war with Israel last year. And just like Iran, their end goal is to absolutely wipe Israel off the map. Well, I guess it uh, remains to be seen just how much people are willing to buy into this notion of Hamas uh, being a moderate force within the region. But uh, looking at this situation prophetically, uh, how do you how do you see this playing out? Well, Israel is going prophetically. We've talked. There's a lot of prophecies that we talk about with Israel, Iran, Gaza, and all that. And I would point people to Mr. Gerald Flurry's book, The King of the South, on this topic. The big thing is that Iran is was kind of the puppet master behind all of this. But when the arrest happened of one of the Palestinian group's biggest uh, leaders, he was arrested, and that's what kind of sparked this conflict. The moment that arrest happened, the overall leader for this group went straight from his headquarters in Beirut and went straight to his masters in, in Tehran. He was meeting with uh, the for Iranian foreign minister. He was meeting with Iranian president, uh, Abraham Raisi. And there was even a photo of him in a secret meeting with the head of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So Iran was behind this part of it. And as we talked about, that definitely shows, you know, him re the, the trying to get Hamas then their image rehabilitated. But the Iran's ultimate goal is the destruction of Israel. And their ultimate goal is to capture Jerusalem, to take back Jerusalem. Ahmadinejad, when he was in power, uh, said once that the uh, question of issue of Jerusalem is not limited to one geographic area, is not just a Palestinian issue, and is in fact even an even greater issue than uh, than the issue of Islam. So that just goes to show you their their focus on Jerusalem. So at the end of the day, prophetically, we're talked we've talked about before how Israel's going uh, Jerusalem's going to be cut in half. Israel's going to lose half of Jerusalem, and that's going to trigger a lot of the prophecies um, that we talk about in terms of the return of Jesus Christ. So. 
uh, I would definitely direct our listeners to the King of the South booklet and be and be watching for the, these conflicts and how they're going to play out. All right. Well, we also have a, an article up by Josh, uh, Another Day, Another Gaza Conflict, as well as that article by Mihailo Zekic that we were referencing, Chaos in Gaza by Design. You can go check those out. Uh, for the show notes at the show notes of uh, the program today. Thank you for that, Joshua. Russia's war in Ukraine continues, and because of its offensive there, one of the Baltic states just officially declared Russia a terrorist state. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was just yesterday that Latvia's parliament voted to officially declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, as you said, because of the way Russia is waging its war on Ukraine. So this uh, this war has been underway now for five and a half months. Hard to believe it's dragged on for so long already. But during that time, Russia's forces have intentionally bombed hundreds of hospitals. The evidence of this is undeniable. And they've intentionally hit just over 1,000 schools and even some shelters where women and children were known to be taking refuge. This happened most infamously in Mariupol, where hundreds of innocents were slaughtered in a shelter there that was uh, clearly designated as having children inside. So it's a, it's a major part of Russia's strategy, this intentionally targeting of civilians. And the reports of Russians torturing and raping and murdering are almost too frequent to keep up with. And then the same is true for reports of mutilation and torture of Ukrainian POWs and uh, also with forcible deportations of Ukrainians. And all of these acts are illegal, according to the Geneva Conventions and other aspects of international law. And then in addition to this, Russia is also sponsoring terrorist groups like the Wagner Group. And then there are terrorist attacks that Russia has committed in other nations, like the very high profile poisoning of the Skripal family in the UK a couple of years ago. So that's a, that's a little bit of everything that the Latvians were evaluating when they came to this decision. And, and I think that when you look at all of this, and especially the intentional targeting of Ukrainian civilians, I think that their decision to designate Russia as a terrorist state was a sound one. And Latvia is actually the second nation to do this. Their neighbor, Lithuania, was the first country back in May to officially designate Russia a uh, terrorist state. And right now, both of these countries are calling on other nations around the world to follow suit, to recognize Russia for what it is, and to end any remaining dealings with this barbaric nation. So why do you uh, why do you suppose Latvia, Lithuania, these uh, these Baltic states are um, particularly sensitive to what Russia is doing? Yes, it's uh, it's really all about history and geography. These these countries were both absorbed into the Soviet Union back in 1940. So they suffered decades of severe repression. Their farms were forcibly collectivized by the Soviets, which just you know, blighted their economies. Uh, Latvia and Lithuania each had more than 100,000 of their citizens deported to Russia. These were the intelligentsia, the, the most highly educated, the most affluent and wealthy. And uh, a majority of these people disappeared into that demonic gulag system. So 
When the Soviet Union finally started to collapse in the late 80s, Latvia and Lithuania were just ecstatic about establishing their independence once again. In 91, they both declared full independence. And at that time, they both set to work uh, just getting as deeply integrated with the United States and Europe as they could. They both joined NATO. They both joined the European Union very enthusiastically because they were just terrified of being on their own if Russian history repeated and it tried to absorb them again. So, you know, these countries experience the evils of Russian rule firsthand. And of course, they're still on the map right next to the Russian bear. Um, they know that if the world goes back to business as usual with Russia, the way it did in 2014, after Russia first invaded Ukraine, then it will signal to Vladimir Putin that no one really cares that much if and when he conquers other countries. And so, of course, these Baltic countries fear that they uh, could be next. So in light of that history and that geographic reality, it's no surprise, I think, to see these, these countries on the vanguard of the movement to isolate Russia and designate it as a terrorist state. The perspective that uh, that these Baltic states have uh, in um, highlighting just how barbaric Russia has been in Ukraine. This really is uh, a reality in the world today that aligns with what the Bible prophesies about Russia's role in end time events. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry actually wrote an article back in March all about Russia's war on Ukraine. And he does mention in there that this is something that he's been specifically sounding the alarm about for many years now. One part of his article says, I have been warning for years that Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquests and would set in motion some astonishing historic events. Um, and then from there, he explains that the reason why he's been warning about Putin is because of Bible prophecy. And he focuses quite a bit on Ezekiel 38. He explains, you know, the, this chapter, it talks a lot about uh, an individual called the Prince of Russia who will wage major war. And Mr. Flurry says this is all about Vladimir Putin. So it's a, it's a lengthy article with many details. And I would recommend that to any listener who's concerned about just all of these uh, events right now with Russia and Ukraine and wants to understand it in the big picture context. All right. Bible prophecy comes alive in Ukraine. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks for that, Jeremiah. Now to Germany, which remains under very weak leadership. The new chancellor is unpopular already. Now evidence is coming out about a scandal that could end his career. For this, we'll turn to Josue Michels. Yes, this week a story erupted that has occupied Germany, has really troubled Germany for many years, and it revolves around tax fraud now. If you think about Germany, you usually think about a sophisticated country, at least I do. But <laughs> Germany has a history of tax fraud and it, the indications that many politicians have been involved in it. Particularly interesting is that the current German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, might have been involved as well. Now, those connections have been known before Germany elected Olaf Scholz to be Chancellor, but the story has been said to be too complicated and it didn't really equip the German public much, and there wasn't enough evidence to really convict Olaf Scholz, so they voted for him anyways. But this week, the story came back up again, because one of Scholz's confidants, another former Social Democrat politician, Johannes Kahrs, has been under investigation, and in one of his safe deposit boxes, 200,000 euros have been found. 
these days that's about the same in dollars, $200,000. So that's an interesting connection. Of course, a politician over many years could save that much money, but his silence kind of says, well, something is suspicious here. And now there has been a case where tax fraud has been committed in Hamburg, where he served along with Olaf Scholz, who was the first mayor of Hamburg around 2016, when that scandal erupted. And that scandal revolves around the bank, Warburg Bank in Hamburg. That company is known for tax fraud. And the tax authorities actually found out about that tax fraud in 2016. And that's when they wanted 47 million euros back. And first they demanded that back, but the Wartburg Bank said, no, we can't do that, that will our financial ruin, and we reject those allegations. And they contacted the Hamburg government, interestingly. And then the case was dropped. Now Olaf Scholz and the Hamburg government says that they did everything right and there was nothing that they did wrong in this case. And if, even if that's true, this scandal kind of makes the shaky coalition government in Germany even more shaky. Some, like the former left politician Fabio De Masi, who is really kind of an expert in things like that, told the German Tagesspiegel that this scandal has the potential to topple the chancellor. And others say much the same. If this scandal goes any further, this could be the early end of German Chancellor Scholz. And as the crisis is right now, the Greens is a coalition partner of Olaf Scholz and the SPD, and they would be very much in favor for new elections because they see their votes, their popularity rising, while the SPD has been steadily declining. So there's much tension within the coalition, and there's much reason for some to want new election that this scandal really could end the German government very soon in a matter of days or weeks, depending on what the investigation might find. But the timing of this crisis is really interesting because we have often talked about the lack of leadership in Germany right now. Mm -hmm. But this time it comes at a time where there are crises so unprecedented that it could impact all of Europe at the same time. Because right now you have French President Emmanuel Macron, who many saw as like the strongman of Europe for some time, but he has become even more lame duck than he has been because of the lack of the European Union support. He has lost a majority in Parliament, so he can't do much internally or on the European scale. Another strongman in, in Europe was Austrian strongman Sebastian Kurz. He had to leave office last year. The European Union Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, she fights against Poland and Hungary because there's some legal issues they want to settle and they block the major decisions that Europe wants to go through. Italy has lost their government. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you have an economic turmoil that Europe hasn't seen in a long time, really. And the European unity is really at a brink of collapse. You have Russia's aggression. And then you have China that might be getting more and more aggressive. So those are economic turmoils that really put a lot of tension on Europe. So if right now the German government has to focus on a scandal internally that really can't get out of it, and that even might cause the collapse of the government altogether, it just doesn't give Europe much hope. But it also points to many Bible prophecies that we have been waiting for their fulfillment for a long time.
Well, that uh, there's a lot to process there. The uh, the I guess we'll find out exactly how this plays out in terms of uh, Olaf Schultz. Uh, he's he's already on shaky ground. Uh, this adds to his political woes. Um, we've kind of seen this develop over the time of his chancellorship. It, it was very difficult to get him into office to begin with because there's there's very little support, uh, broad based support for uh, for any particular candidate for for chancellor or any any particular political party in Germany. So he's he's already kind of governing on uh, with not a whole lot of. Uh, of a mandate from the German people. The one thing that he did that seemed to uh, to excite people was to announce that they were going to increase defense spending and just make for a more robust military uh, in Germany. And, and now that effort seems to have uh, kind of petered out. But the, the idea that if he goes, where does Germany turn to next? Uh, we're kind of back in the same place that we've been over the last several years, even when Angela Merkel was was in power, where there's just a real void within the leadership of this country, which is undoubtedly the most important country within the European Union. And there are just a whole lot of people saying we have to have strong leadership from Germany if this entire European project is going to work. And this is a this, as you said, this points to a biblical prophecy that we've been highlighting for a long time. uh, And that is that someone is going to rise up to fill that void. Yes, that's right. And a prophecy in Revelation 17 really leads us to that conclusion and it has been revealed to the late Herbert W. Armstrong, which also shows us the timing of this prophecy. This prophecy is about the Holy Roman Empire and it states specifically that there would be seven kings. This prophecy was revealed during the time of the sixth king, which is known today as Adolf Hitler. So he led the sixth resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. But the Bible specifically says that there would be a seventh king, and this king would unite 10 other kings in Europe. So that's quite specific here and shows that this prophecy is on a larger scale a prophecy for Europe. And this strongman would lead a conglomerate of European nations. And it's interesting to see now that all those European nations are looking to Germany for leadership more than ever before. So we can see easily how when a man comes up with some ambition, with some zeal, with some fervency in his speeches to give those European countries some visions, the leaders of those countries and the people will look to that man and say like, finally, someone who can lead us out of this crisis, someone who will ensure that we have some bread on the table, someone who ensures that we have some military standing, which in previous years no one really wanted, but now it's a popular issue. So the timing is just right for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, we have a, a, a short article on the website, The Scandal That Could End Schultz by Josue Michels that we will link to in the show notes if you want a little more detail on uh, on what's happening over there. And uh, we also have our booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent. That is uh, from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry. Thanks for that, Josue. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, China and India supporting Russia by doubling their use of Russian oil, Iran dropping its pretense that its nuclear program is entirely peaceful, the U.S. Senate's effort to reduce inflation in America, and more. We'll be right back. 
You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. We spoke in the first half about Latvia condemning Russia's war in Ukraine. Whatever resistance Russia is getting from other nations, it still enjoys stalwart support from other nations, most notably China. Clear evidence of that support appears in the form of Chinese and Indian oil deals with Russia. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, the analysts at Kepler Commodities just released their latest report, and it shows that 41% of Russia's oil is now going to just two nations. And these are the two that you just mentioned there, China and India. Together, they bought 1.85 million barrels of Russian oil per day during the month of July. Um, And that gives them a 41% share of Russian crude for the month. So this is really notable because if you look at the data from last July, 2021, China and India together bought only 22%. Wow of Russian crude. But, you know, Russia launched its full-scale war on Ukraine starting in February. And while most nations of the world have been trying to find ways to stop buying Russian energy to try to, you know, punish and isolate it, China and India have done exactly the opposite. They have dramatically increased what they buy from Russia. And this has been just a major lifeline to Russia. These increased purchases have helped to finance the ongoing violence and bloodshed. They've undermined Western efforts to, you know, isolate the Kremlin. Uh, And it looks like there's no end in sight to the support that China and India are giving to Russia. That's quite a quite a stunning picture. If you just look at a chart of who's buying Russian oil and, and basically the the whole rest of the world kind of going down, uh, China and India going up. When you think about that in light of biblical prophecy and the relationship between China, India, Russia, uh, what the Bible says about that, this is not unexpected. It's playing out precisely the way we we would expect it to. And it's also playing out precisely the way it happened back in 2014, when Vladimir Putin's Russia first invaded Ukraine and took the Crimean Peninsula. Um, At that time, China and India did basically the same thing we're seeing now, making clear that they were not opposed to Putin's expansionism. They kept on doing business as usual, even increasing business with Russia. Um, So yeah, I think it should be no surprise to see this happening this same way right now. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote an article about this in our May-June issue this year. It's called, Asia Still Stands with Putin. And in one part of that, he says, Western nations see the war as a clear example of Putin's deadly despotism. But what about the East? Two of the largest, most populous, most powerful nations in the world are supporting Putin. This is a stunning fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And then from there, he explains the specific prophecy that this fulfills. It's, uh, well, one of them at least is Revelation 9.16. It talks about a massive group of Asian nations that will soon emerge. And that will be led by that same prince of Russia that we spoke about in the first half of the show today. And this passage here in Revelation says that this group of Asian countries will field an army of 200 million soldiers. So that's far more than Russia could ever dream to field on its own. But once you add in China's 1.4 billion people and India's 1.3 or 4 billion people, then it doesn't take long at all to get to those kinds of uh, numbers of soldiers. So I just think right now to see China and India drastically increasing their business with Russia and thereby supporting Putin, it's really clear to see how that is setting the stage for these Asian, Asian giants to all be grouped together in that Asian alliance led by Vladimir Putin. 
Very good. Asia still stands with Putin. That's the article from Gerald Flurry about this this prophecy that we're discussing here. We thank you for that, Jeremiah. For decades, Iran has repeatedly insisted that its nuclear program is entirely peaceful. It has no intention of producing nuclear weapons. Well, now it has dropped this pretense. For this, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. For years and years, we have, at the Trumpet have been talking about this news story, about Iran getting nuclear weapons and talking about where that's going to lead prophetically. And, of course, in geopolitics and in international relations, optics and what everyone sees you talk about is everything. So for years, Iran has been, as you said, has been denying that it's going for a nuclear weapon. It's talked about how it's going for nuclear infrastructure, you know, nuclear reactors for the sake of electricity, all that kind of stuff. Their actions have completely set a different story. And anyone with with a couple brain cells to rub together could see that what's been happening. But now Iran is dropping that pretense altogether. They feel they they feel that they are in a strong enough position with China behind them, Russia behind them, and a weak U.S. that they can now start talking about what their actual goals are. And we've seen that this um, actually on July 30th, when the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps released a video that they called, when will Iran's nuclear bombs wake from their sleep? Now, in that video, they boasted that their nuclear program has struck, quote, fear and horror in the hearts of Westerners and the Zionist regime. And they've also claimed that they are one step away from a nuclear breakthrough. And they even boasted and very, boasted that they could transform New York City into a heap of rubble. Now, of course, this video is a propagandist tool. It's meant to, you know, just be to be propaganda to gin up a lot of support for them. But hyperbole aside, this language marks a, a distinct verbal escalation for them because they're currently still in talks over their nuclear program that's, again, ostensibly for peaceful purposes, but now they're just openly saying, yeah, we're going for a bomb, which is, again, you would think that such an admission would put an end to these nuclear talks and, you know, right. the rest of the international community would go, okay, we need to stop this, but they know that's not going to happen. Right. You would have thought that uh, any number of, of the hundred and uh, thousands of provocations that they've made before this would have put a stop to those negotiations, but those haven't done the trick either. Not at all. And just some, just, this is just some recent advancements for their, uh, their nuclear program in the last year. They've developed um, ballistic missiles that can now reach Europe, uh, Europe, and they've even uh, their highly enriched uranium has just been stockpiled there. It's been growing and growing to the point now where the Institute of Science and International Security published a report on June 1st showing that Iran had crossed the nuclear threshold in terms of their breakout time. It's essentially zero. Uh, within a few weeks, they have enough nuclear material now that they could produce a bomb. And while they're doing that, in less than a month, they could have enough uh, highly enriched uranium, which is about 90% enrichment, for two nuclear bombs. And by the end of a month and a half, they could have enough for a third. So we're at the point now where even if they we strike a deal, where if Joe Biden's administration is able to close a deal with Iran, it would be useless. It would just be a piece of paper because at any moment they could turn on the centrifuges and two weeks later have a bomb. Have a bomb. Well, you mentioned just how long we've been uh, tracking uh, Iran's rhetoric and its actions regarding its nuclear program. And this is something that our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, has talked about a lot. Why uh, a nuclear Iran is such a troubling prospect when you looked at from the standpoint of Bible prophecy. 
Yeah, in Bible prophecy, one uh, a prophecy that Mr. Gerald Flurry has pointed to repeatedly over and over again is in Matthew 24, verse 21 to 22, which reads, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, and then you could add there alive. Now, Mr. Flurry pointed out that up until this modern era, such a destruction of the entirety of the world, the erasure of all human life was not possible. Only with nuclear weapons is this prophecy even able to be fulfilled. And this is the words of Jesus Christ. He's literally saying that at just before his return, nearly all of mankind would be would be destroyed. And his return is the only thing that's going to stop it. So when we see Iran getting nuclear weapons like this, we are just that much closer to Christ's return. Well, we have an article, Iran Escalates Nuclear Threats, that talks about this uh, specifically. And uh, we also link to that booklet, The King of the South, in that article that uh, explains why prophecy warns that we really need to be concerned about Iran getting hold of this kind of weaponry. We thank you very much for that, Joshua. Inflation in the U.S. remains high and troubling. Well, this past Sunday... The Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Will it actually reduce inflation? For the answer, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the Senate did finally pass this Inflation Reduction Act they've been talking about for some time. Uh, it's still uh, awaiting uh, its day in the House, but since the uh, it passed with a... Uh, 51 Democrats for, uh, 50 Republicans against. and The 51st being Kamala Harris. The 51st being Kamala Harris. It was a tie-breaking vote. So uh, the Democrats' margin of power in the House is better than their margin of power in the Senate. So it's uh, almost assuredly going to go through, uh, which would seem probably like some, uh, some good news. Most people are pretty concerned about inflation uh, until you actually read the bill. Because despite the title Inflation Reduction Act, when you look at what it's doing, it's approving about $400 billion in spending on climate change projects such as windmills on the, the Gulf of Mexico and tax rebates for electric cars. It's extending uh, Obamacare subsidies that were exposed to expire this year. And it's hiring 87,000 new IRS agents to crack down on tax fraud. Uh, those are all big changes. Uh, uh, many analysts have even hailed this as the most significant climate change bill in U.S. history. And while that analysis uh, may be right, it probably is the most significant climate change bill in U.S. history. Spending billions of dollars on green energy projects, hiring new IRS agents, and extending Obamacare subsidies, uh, none of those three things, the, the one thing those three things have in common is that none of them have absolutely anything to do <laughs> with inflation. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, the, uh, they've had some pretty good economists over at the Heritage Foundation uh, go through the bill with a fine-tooth comb and um, determine that it's probably going to raise about $50 billion uh, in deficits over the next four years, and uh, which any good economists know that deficit spending is one of the primary causes of inflation so the inflation reduction bill is probably going to uh, increase inflation or if inflation does go down for some reason it won't be because of the bill it will be because of what the federal reserve is doing with interest rates that they're they're fighting against this but uh it really is uh 
I think Larry Kudlow over at Fox News probably phrased it best, where he said that the the title is like something straight out of George Orwell. Mm -hmm. You know, like the war is peace, uh, ignorance is education, like famine is prosperity uh, type thing. Is like so you call the you take the biggest climate change bill in history that's going to spend billions of dollars making inflation worse, but you actually try to get people to support it by calling it the inflation reduction bill. We were talking in the first half about the uh, Mar-a-Lago raid, just kind of exposing the uh, the, the true nature of this bureau uh, in the administrative state of the, the government. Here we have... Uh, Congress, the legislative branch of the government under control of the radical left, uh, that is also increasingly being exposed for its corruption. Yeah. And you don't even really have to do much digging on this one to do the exposing. It's like basically anyone who read the bill or or, or even read like a Reuters summary of <laughs> what's in the bill uh, and, and has a basic high school education on economics, should be able to know that this isn't going to reduce uh, inflation. I have a, one of the articles I'll put in the show notes is actually up on the website now. Um, it's uh, something I wrote entitled, Why the Inflation Reduction Act Won't Actually Reduce U.S. Inflation. And it really notes that like the, the communist movement, I mean, it initially got people to support it by uh, presenting itself as the solution to poverty. Well, we've got about 100 years of data now that communism doesn't actually help poverty at all. Uh, and so a, a lot of the um, these big government socialists and government has really <laughs> latched on to the environmental movement as kind of like their new uh, new excuse. Like, all right, well, if maybe you don't believe communism will solve poverty, but it, it but we're, we're telling you it's going to solve pollution. We need the government to step in and regulate all the businesses uh, regulate all the businesses so we can stop global warming, and so that's that's really kind of the spirit behind the, some of these these movements is like these climate reduction bills, because uh, this um, this bill it doesn't do anything to like protect the ozone or keep the water clean or stop acid rain or solve any real environmental problems. <laughs> it's about um, uh, it's about limiting carbon dioxide emissions which is a molecule necessary to the existence of life on earth <laughs> uh regulating carbon dioxide emissions as a excuse to regulate the to regulate the industries uh and so like i said when the people call this the most significant climate uh like climate change bill in u.s history they're right uh, but the people in Congress uh, and the Biden administration know that uh, Americans right now care a whole lot more about inflation than they do about climate change. So if you call your your climate change bill the inflation reduction bill, you get more support. And I, I think even uh, even Bernie Sanders, who's a pretty radical socialist, who voted for the bill and supports everything that's in it, admitted that is like, yeah, he's like the title was kind of deceptive because mm. it's it's like it's a good bill but it's not about what it says it's about but uh yeah that's definitely if you 
we talked about that America under attack in the first half, and uh, that that really talks about this uh, a lot more detail about this 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 communist movement that has hijacked the U.S. government. Uh, and, and while it might not talk about this climate change example much in particular, it definitely provides a myriad of other examples of just the uh, just really the deceptive tactics that. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, these uh, these radical uh, these radical communist government are using to um, implement a radical agenda while trying to convince people that it's it's not all that radical. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Andrew. We'll finish today's show in Germany, where the government is promoting a COVID drug in a way that shows a clear conflict of interest. For this story, we'll go back to Josue Michels. That's right. Most people probably heard of Paxlovid. It's a product by Pfizer and highly praised as a treatment against coronavirus, especially against severe illness of coronavirus. Although it has also quite a few critics. But the United States chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, had it. Joe Biden took it. And Germany's health minister, Karl Lauterbach, took it. Now, the latter is only 59 years old, so actually outside of the risk group for COVID-19. He also was four times vaccinated against COVID. (laughs) So everything speaks against him having a serious illness for which this Paxlovid actually is designed for. So many saw it as kind of an advertisement for the drug. Now, if you consider that this same man is the one that caused the German government to order one million packages for the fall and winter, it kind of makes sense that he wants this drug to be advertised. But there's one problem. The German people don't actually take the drug. They have ordered many before, and in the end, only 10,000 or so have actually Hmm. bought the package. So Lauterbach thinks this is a problem. So he is saying we need to promote it more and we need to show them that it's a good drug. So this might be motivated to save lives in his mind, but whatever the case may be, the way he goes about it is criticized. For example, he wants and to enable the doctors to describe the medicine directly and actually give it out. And he even says that every time they give out a package, they get 15 euros, which is about $15. Now, that's a problem because people say, well, that's kind of a conflict of interest. That's why we have for more than 100 years that law that they can't do that. So there's many indications that he wants to really push that drug. And it might be to save lives, but it's also big money business. Just the fact that 1 million packages were ordered, you would expect in a population of 80 million that 1 million of severe COVID illnesses after so many have been vaccinated, it's very unlikely. And if you look at the past record of how many actually bought the package, that's just way too many. But he believes people need to buy the package or actually just take it, whatever the case might be. Now, that's interesting. Why would the German government push a truck of Pfizer, which is an American company? Interestingly, the company was actually founded by two German immigrants in the United States and has a long history of cooperating with Germany. In 2018, it went into cooperation with BioNTech, a German startup company, and that prepared Pfizer to then offer the COVID-19 vaccine in 2020. So it's interesting that you have a strong German-American cooperation. Paxlovid specifically is mainly produced in Germany, Freiburg, Germany, 
Other sites are Ireland and Italy, I believe, but the main site is in Germany. Now they say that because of Germany's expertise in the field and they are the best one to produce it. But obviously that will bring money to Germany, it will bring money to the German infrastructure, to the German science. And that's very interesting because the pharmaceutical industry in Germany is not only highly praised, it also has a long history in Germany that includes very dark parts. For example, the chemical and pharmaceutical company IG Farben has been the enabler of Adolf Hitler's war. Now you can think about the automotive industry and others to be a strong component of Hitler's war machine, but this company actually fueled all the other sectors of industry and the war itself. And it's also the only sector right now that's flourishing while the automotive sector and the other sectors that also big in Germany have seen a decline because of the wars and the coronavirus. This industry is rising just like before the world wars. Now that's specifically interesting because if you expect another war, you would expect the automotive industry to go down because that will incentivize them to make a cooperation with the government to produce more military weapons. The same is true for the aircraft industry. But the interesting point here is that America is really helping Germany to go ahead with its pharmaceutical industry and chemical industry. That cooperation is very interesting. There's a lot of money involved and the Bible specifically says that the cooperation between Germany and America is something that we have to watch closely because prophecies in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Hosea, all those three books specifically talk about betrayal. So we have the modern nations of Israel, which is primarily America and Britain, which Mr. Armstrong explained in the United States and Britain and prophecy. They are prophesied to be in a strong cooperation with Germany and the Bible calls them their lovers. But at a moment's time, Germany will betray America and quite suddenly. So all the things that we are now seeing play out, all the money that flows to American businesses, but also to Germany's industry, and that close-knit cooperation on a political level, but also on the level of corporations, is something that we have been watching very closely because it's prophesied to lead to great betrayal. There's a lot to take in there, Josue. Where would you send people for more information about that prophecy, about the German betrayal of America specifically? There's a long section in Mr. Fluey's book about Ezekiel, Ezekiel the end time prophet. It talks about the double cross and it really explains how that double cross will in the end lead to the fall of a superpower, which has in the past been seen unimaginable. But this book really lays it out how it will all unfold. All right, thank you. We'll link to that in the show notes for the program today. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Josh Taylor, and Josue Michels. Thanks to Jeremiah and to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Benjamin Disraeli. The greatest good you can do for another is not to just share your riches, but reveal to them their own. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.
You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.